0: Good morning and uh, Merry Christmas. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, really glad that you're uh, here with us today. Uh, before we dive into this, uh, you know, as we're finishing this last series or this last week of our Advent series, I want to just tell you a little bit about what we're doing uh, coming after this. So Tuesday, as Seth mentioned, is Christmas Eve. Uh, going to be preaching the gospel from John chapter 1 uh, about how Jesus is the light of the world. That's what we'll talk about on Tuesday. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to do something that we've done the last few years that we call Ask Anything. And essentially what it is, is it's a chance for uh, you to bring your questions, questions that you have about the scriptures, questions you have about theology, questions you have about our church, questions, the kind of personal questions, whatever it is, it's literally called Ask Anything. So it's up to you. Um, But our directional team, um, myself and Matthew Brazelton and Seth Trout and Josh Watt will field those questions. And so uh, maybe there's a question that's been kind of burning in your heart or your mind or something you've been wrestling with or uh, debating with someone about and you want to have us weigh in or whatever. But... Uh, That's what we'll do next Sunday. Then the Sunday after that, which is the first Sunday in the new year, we're going to do, get this, we're going to do a standalone message called Loving One Another Through the 2020 Election. (laughs) Okay? Okay. Believe it or not, it is coming. I'm so sorry that it's coming. I'm not in control of those things, but it's coming and we have to love each other. And so we're going to talk about that the first Sunday of January. And then after that, we're starting a brand new series where we're going to walk verse by verse through the book of Malachi. That's something we'll do as Redemption Church as a whole. And so uh, that's kind of what's coming in the next few weeks. So today we're wrapping up the Advent series and this last week as we've mentioned is all about love and so I looked up in the dictionary I just thought you know what I I think we all think we know what love is but maybe we don't so let's just look up in the dictionary what is love and love it turns out is a noun I suppose it could also be a verb, but I'm going to give you the definitions of uh, nouns. Three of these I think you'll understand, and the fourth one maybe you won't. But I thought, i got to have something kind of fresh. So let's look at these and see if there's anything fresh here. Number one, an intense feeling of deep affection. And for each of these, the dictionary I was looking at used it in a sentence. So babies fill parents with intense feelings of love. Also other kinds of intense feelings. But that's one. Uh, number two, a great interest and pleasure in something. We share a love of music, right? This is how we talk about love quite frequently, is to describe the things that we're into. Number three, a person or thing that one loves. And I thought this example was really striking. Their two great loves are tobacco and whiskey. So I don't know what the authors of this dictionary are into, but that's their two great loves, so that, that's interesting, and then number four, love is a score of zero in tennis, uh, love 15, right, if, if you aren't familiar with tennis, tennis scoring is so screwed up, the zero is called love, and then you go to 15, and then you go to 30, right, because I think they're like, this game is so bad, let's just speed it up, 15, and then 30, and then 40, right? So it's totally inconsistent. But I did some research for you because I knew you would care about this, and I found out why they call it love. Why is zero called love in tennis? And there's actually two theories on it. Um, one is that the French word for egg, since a zero looks kind of like an egg, the French word for egg is luf. And so they think that perhaps that just translated eventually that when you have a goose egg, when you have no points at all, it's love. So maybe that's the reason. The other reason, this is not, uh, this is not a dad joke. This is like literally the reason I saw is that sometimes if you have zero, it means you're playing for the love of the game because clearly you're bad. So, <laughs> So like that was actually a real answer I found about why that is. So I know that has nothing to do with God or Advent or anything. That's just bonus material for you uh, to know that. Uh, it's still interesting. Uh, so so that, those definitions don't entirely help us push into the importance of love. And so I thought of this quote. Uh, that I heard this year. Uh, there's a guy named David Brooks. He's a conservative uh, opinion writer. I guess some people debate how conservative he is, but he's an opinion writer for the New York Times. And he wrote a book this year that I've seen on a lot of people's best of lists called The Second Mountain. And he kind of describes how early in his life he was all about climbing this first mountain of success and achievement. And, but at some point, once you've climbed that, there, there's a second mountain is I guess what the book's about. I haven't read it. And the second book is, or the second mountain is where you're trying to find meaning and you're trying to connect with relationships and the kind of deeper things of life. I think it's a bit of a memoir of his own sort of spiritual searching. And uh, one of the articles that I read about this uh, talked about um, a place where Brooks says that he had an atheist friend who didn't believe in God, didn't believe God controlled history, didn't believe God was intimately involved in our lives. But this friend of his, she had a daughter. And what she told him was that when she had her daughter, she realized that she loved the, the child more than evolution required. Isn't that interesting? Here she is thinking like, yeah, I pretty much believe in the survival of the fittest. And, but then why do I love this child so much? Evolution doesn't require that. And it just shows us how important love is. I mean, we know this, don't we? I mean, some of us that didn't feel like we experienced love as children, we're still dealing with the kind of shrapnel from that in our lives. We never quite feel right because we didn't get the kind of love we should have. Some of us are experiencing loveless marriages, loveless relationships between you and your adult children where everything is harsh and everything is judgmental and everything is combative and everything feels really ugly because there's just not much love. On the other hand, we know that love is really beautiful when it happens, right? We know this kind of magical love like this woman had for her child that says, I would do anything for this kid and this kid can't do anything back to help me, but I'll still lay my life down for it. We know the kind of love that happens in romance and in marriage and in relationships when it's beautiful and when it's sweet and when it's tender. We know that, that love is just a really big deal. And the question is why? Like, it, like it's such a big deal. It's so obvious that even when you thought like, oh, a sermon on love, how much longer is this going to be? Like? It's so obvious that it's just staring us in the face all the time. But why is it such a big deal? deal? And the answer is because we are made in the image of a relational God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons of the Godhead have loved one another forever. We've been created out of the overflow of that love, made in the image of a God who loves like that, and therefore, relationships and love are just foundational to who we are. And love is a really important deal. And yet, in our world, it's broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. And so what we're going to do uh, today is we're going to look kind of first big picture at what the Bible says about God's love and what it's accomplishing and what it's doing. And then we're going to look at this story here in Matthew 2 that we read just a moment ago, kind of zoom in and see some other components about the way God loves us. So that's what we're going to do. Let's pray, and let's uh, look at the love of God. Uh, Father in heaven, we, uh, we know that our hearts are hungry for the kind of love that we usually only just get little whiffs of, little tastes of, little glimpses of. We're hungry for it, God, and we pray that you would give us more of a taste of you, more of a sense of your love for us, that it would not be conceptual or philosophical, but that it would land in our hearts in a way that's real and important and deep, that it would heal our relationship with you and send us to love others. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to look at a few different things here today. We're going to look at how God's love sent Jesus how God's love extended to the nations, and how God's love invites us to love in response. So first, let's look at God's love which sent Jesus. God's love sent Jesus. How do we know God loved us? Because he sent Jesus. Now, uh, there's a, a document that we've been working on as Redemption Church for the last few years, or not last few years, last few months. Uh, we've been working to revise and update our membership document, our doctrinal membership packet. And uh, some of you don't know this, but actually Redemption Church was formed in 2011 through the merger of three existing churches. So there are three churches that were doing great, that were going really well, but the leaders had relationship and we thought, you know what, if we were all starting over, we would do this together And so it was like, well, what if we started over and did this together? And so every church gave up their name and we all took on this new name, this new identity of redemption and uh, have planted and started a number of other congregations since then. And so in those early days, we thought, you know what, we have to have a unifying document uh, that will make it where when people want to really commit to the church and uh, communicate their ownership of the ministry, they can kind of read this and and know where we stand on stuff. And so we've uh, had that document uh, for a while, but we've kind of gone through the process of refining it over these last few months because now we're, you know, you know, nine or so years into using it and going, you know what, there's some ways that we could get this clearer. There are some ways that we could make this more understandable. There are some positions that we really need to make sure that we're very clear on where we stand. So we've been rewriting this whole thing. One of the things that we did in this new document, it's going to probably be kind of public in, you know, February. But one of the things that you'll see if if you see it at some point is that we've changed the first article to be an article about love. And I wanna read to you from the first paragraph of that first article. This is how important this is. Here's what it says in in that new document. It says, from eternity past, the one God exists in three persons as an eternal communion of perfect love. Out of the overflow of that love, he created the world we inhabit such that relationship is woven into the fabric of all that exists. Isn't that a great line? woven into the fabric of all that exists. The reason our relationships matter so much, the reason we get so much joy when relationships are healthy and loving and strong, and the reason why it's so heartbreaking and even traumatic when relationships break, is because we're made in the image of a relational God, and relationship is the fabric that weaves things together. What if this became a priority for us as the people of God? Like, 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 what if as parents, we shifted the, the vision of parenting from being, we want to raise nice kids, we want to raise good grade getting kids, we want to raise talented at stuff kids, we want to raise future, high achiever kids, all that's fine. But what if the vision for us as parents was we want to raise kids who know how to love? They love one another in their sibling group. Oh, dear Lord, make it be. And they know how to lay their lives down for the good of others who can't repay them and who don't deserve it. What if that was our vision? What if that was our goal? Because really it should be, because that's what's in line with the fabric of the universe that God made. Or maybe you think about it this way. Some of you are like uh, making New Year's resolutions, New Year's goals, right? You're kind of beginning to think about that. By the way, you can always tell uh, who who used to make resolutions because they say they make goals. If someone says, I make goals, I don't have really resolutions. What that means is I never was able to keep my resolutions. So I moved the target and made it goals, right? So I'm more of a goal person, not a resolution person. But, but maybe, maybe you're thinking about your goals. You're thinking about your resolutions. You're thinking about what's important for 2020. Is love part of that list? Or is it all about how you look? It's all about how much money you're gonna make. It's all about the trips you're gonna take. And it's all about a bunch of stuff that's great, but it's not at the heart of the fabric of the universe, which is relationship and love. Maybe we just need to readjust it. Here's what it says in the rest of this paragraph. It says, this relational vision for creation implicates our understanding of sin. At the heart of humanity's rebellion, there is a relational discord with God which reverberates through the whole of the universe. Sin is, among other things, the obstruction of love. What sin is, is saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't love you. I don't think you have a good vision for me. I'm going to live for myself. And we know that the opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. And so what happens when we sin is we say, God, I'm going to live for me. And then living for me means, hey, everyone else, I'm going to live for me. And all of a sudden, that beautiful fabric of loving relationship is how God made the world gets torn, gets broken. And so this is what's amazing about God. Sin was a failure to love God and a failure to love others. And God decides, rather than leave us in that condition, God will fix our love problem. And how will he do it? Through love. Through love. Through sending love into the world. This is what we read about in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It, It doesn't say God so loved the world that he sent an idea. God so loved the world that he sent a philosophy. God so loved the world that he sent a white paper. God so loved the world that he sent his son. That was the first series we did in 2019 was love walked among us. That God is love and love is shown who that is through Jesus. Why did he do this? So that we wouldn't perish. So that we wouldn't die apart from him. So that we wouldn't live a fractured, broken relationship forever. It says in verse 17 of John 3 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's love is why Jesus came. John, who who wrote John 3, also wrote a letter to a number of churches that he had some influence over in 1 John chapter 4. And in 1 John 4, John says something almost exactly like John 3. It says this, in this, this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How do you know God loves us? Because he sent Jesus. Because he sent his son. And what did this do? It made it so that we could live, because real life is a life of love." It says in the next verse, "In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Not word there at the end. propitiation. Uh, that's a word that you probably uh, haven't used since ever. Right? And so th- th- there's kind of an interesting thing, right? If you're a Bible translator and you're trying to make the, the, the Greek language accessible to English speakers, you might go, gosh, can we do a different word that they'll know? Uh, but this is actually such a rich word that I'm glad they left it in there. And it gives me a chance every time we read it to explain it. Because here's what propitiation is. Propitiation is the absorbing of wrath, So you could say it this way, he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath absorber for our sins. When you dishonor a holy, righteous, perfect, loving God, when you say, "Aunt, not interested in you, I'll live for me, you deserve God's wrath. Sometimes we experience God's passive wrath, which is where he just lets us do what we want and says, have fun. And we go and we wreck our lives and we wreck our world and it's great for a little bit until it isn't. And other times God pours out his active wrath, his anger that's righteous and just against people who've rebelled against him and been selfish and hurt his good world. And what this is saying is that the love of God came so that you wouldn't have to absorb God's wrath against your sin because Jesus did. Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God that we deserve. Anyone who would ever believe in him, all of their sin, all of their punishment, all of their guilt, all of their shame, all of their fear was poured out on Jesus so that we could have life, so that we could be free. This is why Jesus came. Just a few verses before what we read a moment ago in Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel told Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus, do you know what it means? God saves. You'll name him God saves because God saves. This is the love of God. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I had one of these really sweet moments. These don't happen a lot, but but that's why maybe it stands out. But I had this moment where it felt like, oh, maybe the things that... Uh, we're trying to teach our kids, and maybe the things they're learning in kids' ministry and in uh, Bible study fellowship and some of the other environments that they're kind of involved in, maybe some of this is sinking in, because uh, Hank and Mary, those are our, our two little ones. Mary's five and Hank's three, and they, um, they have their own room that they, well, not their own room. They share a room. They have their own room together. <laughs> and in their own room together, we got them their own Christmas tree. And we got lots of ornaments, so we said, okay, pick some of the ornaments that you want, and you can put your, the ornaments you want on your tree. And Hank was so excited because uh, he grabbed the cross ornament and he put it on there and he said, Daddy, I want the cross to be on the tree. I said, oh, really? Why is that, buddy? He goes, because the reason Jesus was born was so he could die on the cross. I was like, you're right, buddy. <laughs> Preach it, man. <laughs> And, And I don't know, I mean, there's no way he could possibly understand the depth of what he was even saying. But he's absolutely right. Maybe the most appropriate thing we could hang on a tree commemorating the birth of baby Jesus is a tool of execution, a cross on which that sinless savior would die as a substitute in our place. By this we know God loves us. He sent his son. So that's why Jesus came, was because of the love of God. But what we see as we zoom in now, kind of leaving the big picture and zooming into Matthew 2, what we see is that this love was not just for a few people, but that it was actually for the whole world. Look at what it says. Well, here's here's the second point. God's love extends to the nations, to the nations. Uh, Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, sorry, Matthew chapter two, verse one It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, by the way, just, just stop me there for a second. It's striking to me that if we didn't have the gospel of Luke, most of what we understand for the Christmas story, we wouldn't have right. like no angels, really no shepherds, no manger. Uh, you just wouldn't have much, right? Matthew doesn't talk about it. The first part of Matthew 1 is a genealogy. Then he talks about the angel showing up to Joseph, and then the kids born. And then it's this story. So, this is clearly, in Matthew's mind, a really important story. Because what Matthew's going to do is he's going to finish the book by saying, Go into all nations, baptizing them, making disciples. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The book starts with the idea that God's love is for the nations. The book ends with the idea that God's love is for the nations. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now here's a trivia question. How many wise men came some hands in the back, eager, eager beavers back there. How many wise men were there? Some of you are like, I think there's three, but no one's answering, so I'm really doubting myself. And that's a good instinct because we have no idea how many there are, right? A popular lore says there were three because they're mentioned the three gifts. So we imagine, oh, there were three wise men and all our Christmas songs say there were three wise men and all our nativities, you know, just had three wise, wise guys. So, so that's all we think, but we actually have no idea. And it's really honestly probably pretty unlikely that there were just three because when you look at the expense of the gifts they brought, the idea that you would just travel with three people this full distance would have been incredibly insecure and unsafe and probably a bad idea. So probably a larger group, but we don't honestly know. They're called wise men, it says in verse one. Wise men from the east. Uh, Some translations call this magi. Uh, Magi is this word that describes this Persian priestly class. It's a word that describes this group of people who were very much into astrology and magic. So these astrologers who are looking at the heavens... Notice something, what do they notice? They notice a star, it says, and they interpret that this is a star representing the king of the Jews. They say, for we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now, what is this star? Well, we don't really know. Some people speculate maybe they saw some sort of nova, some explosion of a star, and it really got their attention. Other people say, well, they were into astrology, and, and there's, uh, there's different planets that line up, and one of the things that happened around this time was that three times in 7 BC, Jupiter and Saturn uh, crossed each other in this kind of great uh, conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, and maybe they saw that, and maybe they interpreted that a certain way. We don't know. How about this? Maybe it's just a miracle. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, we're talking about God taking on a body. So maybe it was just a miracle. I don't know. Whatever it is, they see it. Now think about this for a moment. As I said, we don't have a lot of details around this Christmas story, but Jesus is sent into the world, the love of God as a person. Who knows about it at this point? Mary and Joseph and some family members. A few shepherds and these guys, right? A, a few Jews, Mary and her family and the, and the shepherds and Gentiles, these people from a long way off. I mean, can you imagine convincing your wife, hey, honey, uh, I've got to take a trip. How long is it going to be? I don't know. Months, maybe years. Why? Because I saw some stars. Right like that feels pretty unrealistic in some ways, right? Like these guys are pretty committed. Right? Most of us are like we don't want to drive across to the West Valley for Christmas Day to be with family. Like these guys are traveling months and months and months on this journey to honor the king of the Jews. This is remarkable. God's love from the beginning extends to the nations. Not just to a small group of Jews, not just to some secret select thing. This is not like, hey, you have to have this secret knowledge to get access to God's love. No, 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 no. This is public and it's for the world. And isn't it amazing and ironic of God to use something as strange, as astrology, to get the attention of some people who come to worship Jesus? The Jews seem to be asleep at the wheel. They're not really thinking about this. When the Magi show up and they say, hey, we've heard about this, I think they're probably expecting that there's some huge party that's already happening welcoming the king of the Jews and they all just sort of yawn at it. This is God showing his love, extending his love to people we would never think he would show up to. And think about this. Isn't this the story of God? I mean, think about this. We're reading this in the book of Matthew who was Matthew? He was a tax collector. Betrayed his people. Corrupt. Evil. Harsh. Becomes a follower of Jesus. Wouldn't have expected that. Most of the rest of the New Testament is written by this guy named Paul, who before that was known as Saul. And the thing he was most known for was killing Christians. Think about the early church, St. Augustine, who was such a formative person in the history of the church as well as the history of even Western culture. He was a sex addict who couldn't break free. No one would have suspected that he would go on to write some of the most profound works of Christian theology in the world. But God saved him. One of the best books I've read in the last few years was by Rosaria Butterfield. It was called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert where she describes her story of being a a women's uh, studies professor in a lesbian relationship, a professor at a big school in the Northeast and she experiences coming to faith in Christ. You wouldn't have expected her. That's why her book is Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I can't help but think of Tom Schrader. Uh, Some of you have heard me talk about Tom. Uh, Tom was a mentor and a friend to me. He passed away this past January. As I think about 2019, I can't help but think of him. And he came to faith in his 30s, was just living like hell. There were some guys in his workplace who went to a Bible study every week, and they never invited him. And finally, one day, Tom's life was just so circling the drain that he said, you know what, can I come to that Bible study with you? And they said, yeah, I guess. It's for anyone. And he went. He came to faith in Christ. Ended up years later starting this church. He went back to the people in his office and said, hey, how come you guys never invited me? And they said, we never thought God could save someone like you. (laughs) Or think about this. Kanye West puts out an album blaring on Times Square, Jesus is King. <laughs> like I've been wondering for years, I've thought, is there ever going to be another like Billy Graham type person that like travels and does evangelistic things and sees a bunch of people come to faith and I, do, I don't know, I'm not predicting anything but I just wonder, might it be Kanye West? And I saw the other day that uh, he's teamed up with Joel Osteen to tour around. I thought, oh no. And then I but, but then I thought, but then I thought, wouldn't it be just like God to get Joel Osteen on the right track through Kanye West? I don't know. L- listen, and, and here's how I know God can save anyone. Because he saved me. Because he saves us. We're not like. VIPs, oh, God just going, oh, if only I could get them on my team, I'd change the world. No. We're foolish. We're selfish. We try to ruin our lives with sin. And God gives us grace. God's love extends to the nations. God's love extends to the unlikely. By the way, this is why we invite people to church. This is why we invite people over for dinner. This is why you invite people into relationship because you don't know how God might use it. This is why we invite people on December 22nd and on December 24th and on every other week of the year because people need to meet Jesus and God's love extends to them. Here's the third thing we see in this text as we reflect on God's love is that God's love invites a loving response. God's love invites a loving response. Have you ever had a moment when you thought, you know what, I'm gonna tell this person I'm dating for the first time, I love you. <laughs> you ever had that, some of you had that moment? Right. By the way, you shouldn't like just throw that one around. Use that wisely. I remember. I remember, like, thinking maybe I'll tell Molly that I love her. I don't know. Right? I've been watching Seinfeld. By the way, happy Festivus tomorrow to all of you Seinfeld fans. Um, I love Seinfeld. It's my favorite all-time show. And I found a a list of family-friendly Seinfeld episodes. Uh, So we've been showing those to Abby and Caitlin. It's a short list, but we've been watching those episodes. And. And one of them is this episode where George is like, he's ready to tell someone that he loves, that he loves her. And Jerry asks, well, George, are you confident in the I love you return? Because that's a pretty big matzo ball hanging out there if you don't get the I love you return. Sure enough, George doesn't. It's an old show. You don't have to worry about it. But anyway, you get that feeling. This is what God's doing. He's saying, I love you. What's our response? I love you. I'm not just talking about it. I'm showing it. I'm sacrificing for it. I love you, God's saying. And this love invites a response. Notice the three responses in this passage. The first response is the response of Herod. It's the response of rejection. Right? These guys show up and say, where's the king of the Jews? Let's worship this guy. And Herod is threatened. Why? Because Herod's going, we already have a king of the Jews. We don't need another one. Listen, some of you, you're threatened by Jesus because you're thinking, I already am king of my life. I don't want another one. And so here's what you do. You make up all sorts of reasons why you have like great, insightful, intellectual thoughts for, that disprove Jesus, but the reality is at a gut level, you just don't even want it to be true because you like being your own king. Most people aren't honest enough to admit that. One of the people who is is Thomas Nagel. He's a professor from NYU. Here's what he says. He's an atheist. He says, I want atheism to be true. And am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. And naturally, I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that the cosmic authority problem is not rare. Do you have a cosmic authority problem? If you do, this offer of God's love, you'll just flat out reject it. That's what Herod did. He tried to squash it. He tried to get rid of it. Why? Because he already was king. Second response is the response of the scribes. This is the one that has blown my mind and honestly the one that's just confronted me the most. It's the response of apathy. Right After these guys show up, Herod gets all the chief priests and the scribes together and says, hey, where's the Christ supposed to be born? And they don't have to think real hard about this. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is what they quote that says, oh, he's coming out of Bethlehem. And so they go, yeah, we know that. I mean, the the, the prophets have said this and we know the Christ is going to come from Bethlehem. And so you would imagine that at that moment, the race to Bethlehem is on. Who can get there first? The wise men or the scribes. You know what? Let's just go together. This is amazing. The Messiah has come. But instead, they go, oh, you guys go ahead. We're fine here. Mm. Yeah. God loves us. I just wonder if that's the response for a lot of us, that we're so familiar with the love of God, we've come and almost been inoculated to it. We've had just enough of it to like build up a defense against it and be sort of bored with it. Let's, let's be challenged. Let's not be these scribes. Let's be like the third response, the wise men who respond with love. With love. They've traveled all this way. They've sacrificed this great trip. They've sacrificed these expensive gifts. It says they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jesus has not died yet. Jesus has not taught yet. Jesus has not healed yet and they're worshiping because he's worthy of it. They love him because God has loved them. See, God's love sent Jesus. God's love extends to the nations, even us, and God's love invites a response. So what will your response be? What will our response be? Let's respond with love, with praise, with adoration. Because God has loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your deep and abiding love. It's steadfast. It's kind. And you've proven it by sending Jesus to absorb the wrath that our sins deserve. To die as a substitute in our place. And so we thank you. And we praise you. God, I pray that you would fill us with wonder and with love because of Christ. That we would marvel that you would forgive our sin and welcome us into your family. That we would marvel that you would take people like us and make us your children. God, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.